I think the lesson to be learned here is bass players should not issue ultimatums. <laughs> yeah, unless your name is Sting. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and general complainers get together to talk about albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We are going to do some deep dives, give you a background on the artist, and we are going to make fun of the artist. As a warning, in case The Cure are your favorite band, we're going to make fun of The Cure. Whether we like them or not, we make fun of all of our favorite bands because music is amazing. We have all the respect in the world for people who go out there and put their heart and soul on the tape, but there is a lot to make fun of. So after we give our deep dives, after we listen to a couple of different songs, we are going to, at the end, vote and tell you whether or not you really do need to hear this album before you die. Because you have clicked on the link, you are aware that this week we will be covering the album 17 Seconds by the band The Cure, released April 18th, 1980. If you are not familiar with this album, don't worry. We're going to listen to enough of it that you're going to be able to hear and appreciate what we are talking about. And in that spirit, before we do our introductions and our tweet-length reviews, we are going to listen to a little bit of what I think was the biggest single off of this album. This is the song called A Forest. Now you have an idea of what we have been listening to. Some on this call may say suffering through this week. By way of introduction, I am going to throw it around the room for our tweet length reviews, and I am going first to Alan. Bloated, overindulgent, excessive, unnecessary. These are words I never thought I would use to describe a mere 35-minute album. Yet here we are. Okay, I see where this is going. Rob, give it to me. Thanks, Tom. This is Rob here, and I'm not sure you do see where it's going, because here's my tweet. 
17 Seconds is atmospheric, minimalist, and patient. A haunted house of a record with vibe for days. This week saw me trying to reconcile my unpainted fingernails and Banana Republic jeans with the dawning realization that I may just have been secretly goth all along. Ooh, okay. interesting. Interesting take from Rob. Ooh, look at me with my Banana Republic jeans. <laughs> yeah, not your Banana Fishbone jeans, which is a <laughs> reference to a later Cure song, which is terrible. It should have been on this album then. So this is Tom. I'm going to be guiding you all through our journey down Cure Lane here. And I have a very succinct tweet-length review. I thought I liked The Cure more. Apparently I was wrong. <laughs> Now, we're going to jump into our general impressions of the album, and I'll actually go first and say that. I did kind of like this album. It took me a while, though. This is not one that catches you right away. This is basically anti-hook. There's no hook on this album at all. You really have to want to like this album. I couldn't disagree more. And in fact, I would say the exact opposite of what you said in your tweet. I thought I liked The Cure less, having never listened to a Cure album front to back in my life until this week. Of course, the hits, the ubiquitous hits, have been drilled into my brain. I don't need to hear Friday I'm in Love again, ever, really, or various other Cure hits. But this album immediately jumped out to me just for its its vibe. I just I fell in love with its its minimalism. It's definitely a vibe. It's definitely got that going on. You know, it's a vibe. And also, let me say this up front. I know, Tom, you stated this at the outset. I have a ton of respect for this band. They've stood the test of time, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They've done all that, been there, done that. But I'm going to be a little harsh on this album because I truly think this album is kind of a piece of shit, to be honest. So I just want to put it out there that I respect them. I respect what they do. But to me, I felt like I really wanted to like this album. I was actually excited when this came up because I love these iconic bands who I only know the hits and I love that opportunity to like go into their catalog and find the deep cuts, find the things that like the radio has overlooked. But I felt like this album in my mind just fails on like every musical level. Like I feel like it's dull, mechanical, lifeless. I don't need hooks or choruses always but I just feel like there was nothing to hang my hat on here. And I will say there's definitely a vibe. There's a mood. But I don't feel like they went deep enough into that mood for it to really have like paid off in my mind. Like they sort of scratched the surface of some weird spooky things. And then that was kind of it. Well, I will say this. These are all slow burns. Absolutely. The songs all are, like Rob said, minimalist, very layered. And I did appreciate it upon repeat listens. I think that my reason for coming into this and not being initially impressed is that I actually am familiar with a couple of different Cure albums. Like, I know Disintegration, I know Head on the Door, and I know Three Imaginary Boys. And they don't sound like this that much. I will say that this is their second album. And so this is a less mature version of what I think they end up perfecting later. And we'll talk a little bit about the dynamics that are going on behind the scene that led to this album being created in the way that it was created. But overall, I think that if I was to hear this just one time playing, I would probably dismiss it as background music, being forced through this exercise to have to really look for things in it to like. I was able to find a lot of stuff that I did appreciate. 
I'm just a little surprised that we're this much in disagreement. I can't recall another time where we were all coming in fresh to the material and also disagreed this strongly. Maybe you can, one of you two can think of an example, but I really just had an opposite experience. I didn't know what to expect. You're right. I looked at the track list. I think we made reference to it last week and I didn't recognize any of the song titles. And I said at the time that I liked that, that I didn't want to be distracted by Just Like Heaven, which again, I don't need to hear ever again, ever. So this immediately jumped out to me. I think it's great headphone music. It makes you feel like you're in Night Rider or something. And I think the production in particular, so I'm basically just going to refute everything Alan said. <laughs> I think they absolutely invented a genre here. That's what it sounds like to me. Maybe Tom will tell us that's not the case or We'll learn more about that. I'm excited to learn more about that. But it feels like there's a whole genre within this record that now I'm intrigued by. Well, we can talk a little bit about the genre later as we get into the roots of gothic rock. But this is kind of gothic rock in its early stages. I can't give them credit for inventing it, and we'll get into some specifics behind that. But it does have a bit of a spookiness, what somebody described these three albums that they did in a row here started off with 17 seconds and then it was faith and then it was pornography basically 80 81 82 17 seconds and 80 faith and 81 pornography in 82 as a primal scream from the bottom of a dark well and i kind of get that vibe i mean not the scream part because especially this album is very subdued but i do get this sort of trapped in a deep dark place vibe from this and i can see why it spoke to a lot of people at the time maybe i'm not in that headspace if i was a teenager when i first heard this it probably would have been a little bit different for me yeah i'll just say that i don't relate to the angst aspect of it at all and i think i've said before on this podcast even when i was a teenager at my angstiest i don't think i was that way but that did not at all get in the way of me appreciating this. If you'd asked me last week, I would have assumed it may have gotten in the way, but turns out it didn't. Okay. Well, this is something that I feel like, Rob, you have in your musical tastes. You you came up through like Talking Heads, which also do a lot of layering. And I do think that this album at its best is layered. Minimal layers on top of minimal layers create a sum that is greater than its parts. But I think that Again, for me, it just didn't, when I first heard it, I was kind of like, oh, this is a little boring. In fact, I kind of puckishly named the focus list 17 seconds of entertainment upon my first listen through. I was like, this is fucking boring as hell. I don't know what is going on here. And I, I do find that at its worst, this album is boring. At its best, I think that there is an understated intensity to it. I think there's absolutely an intensity. I just wanted to follow up on what you said about the other musical touchstones and why I like it. You mentioned the layering. I agree with that. I think what's implied there, though, that we should state more clearly is just droning repetition. Really, really simple parts that go on and on and become trance-like. And so I will cop to that. I do like other music like that. The Velvet Underground comes to mind as having made some of that music. Like you said, some Talking Heads stuff 
is a bit like that. There's one band from the 90s that I kept thinking of again and again and again when I was listening to this record. I assume it's going to come up any moment. You had a shirt, Tom, that I remember from many pictures. I'm talking about Nine Inch Nails. I can see a, a dotted line to that music. I think for me, I also like that kind of music. So I mean, obviously love Talking Heads and I love their Remain in Light style trancey layering phase. That's probably my favorite Talking Heads phase. I also have an affinity for other music that people find boring, like Trip Hop and, you know, Thievery Corporation and Nightmares on Wax and like that kind of music. But at least I feel like with that kind of music, there's some kind of soul. And I don't mean soul as a genre, but there's like a pulse. There's something that you, you sort of move, you bob your head. This just felt, I felt like devoid of anything listening to this. And Again, I do think there was a little bit of a mood that they were setting, but I it felt a little bit like this was the soundtrack to like a horror films 101 class in like film school where it was like they're trying to go for this and it just it, none of it really landed with me at all. And I think to sort of compound it for me, it, the whole, oh, I'm so disillusioned, man, like I'm just, uh. I can tolerate that in, you know, even like Nick Drake, who I don't love. Elliot Smith, I think, is decent, but at least to me, it feels a little bit like novel. It, I can like feel the emotion. To me, this just felt like a just a boring mess. So Robert Smith for this apparently purposefully wrote vague lyrics that were somewhat unsettling, but were not specific enough that they have like a narrative through line allowing the listener to freight their own emotion on top of it. Very much a la David Byrne as well, although he doesn't do it in the I'm so depressed way. His aren't vaguely unsettling. His are like vaguely happy. But it was a bit of a an exercise in trying to not only give space in the music, but give space in the lyrics for people to put their own interpretation on top of it, which I, I respect. And I think that's kind of cool. And maybe the fact that you're like, oh, I'm so disillusioned and everything sucks says more about you than it does about Robert Smith, Alan. No, I'm saying that's I'm I'm not saying I'm disillusioned. Well, yes, I am. But like, <laughs> I'm channeling him and my aversion to that kind of music but i think it, it can be and has been done well by many artists but I, I think in this case it it fell a little bit flat for me honestly i think okay. back to the talking heads thing i don't want to like stay on that for too long but when i think about the layering the the trance the the hypnotic rhythms i feel like it builds to something and you find yourself in in like a momentum where you're just like Hey, this was a slow burn to get here, but I'm feeling this. Like I'm I'm in this. And I don't recall a single point in this album where I felt like, yes, like we've arrived at something that feels like energy or that feels like anything. I think it's very subjective, of course, though. So I agree. Let's get off talking heads. Because what you're really saying, I think, with this comparison, which is limited, is there is not a hint of funk. On this record, not even no. a microdose of funk anywhere in there. And the, the Talking Heads do a layering, repetitious thing, but they are building to some kind of gospel funk. So maybe a better touchstone for this is art rock or kraut rock, even the Kraftwerk stuff or the stuff Bowie was doing in Berlin. Bauhaus it, or Bauhaus. Yeah. I don't know Bauhaus as well, to be honest, other than maybe a couple hits. But it reminded me a little bit of the Kraftwerk 
record that I know, the first record, Man Machine or something. One thing that I will say about the droning, repetitious nature of these songs, and this is something that bumped me from that trance vibe, is that I feel like it works best when you lean into it and you don't all of a sudden throw in a very whack chord or a very whack chord change to a different series of chords and they do that kind of a lot they pick non-obvious chords to go to that say they're not in key is not even getting to the real heart of the matter they are very purposefully a break in what just happened and that when it was done tastefully was a very interesting choice but i feel like there were many times where it was not done tastefully and it sort of just seemed to derail the whole project and i had to start my immersion over again well, I feel like those breaks just didn't happen enough for me. Like, I don't need, you know, prog rock. That's obviously not what they're trying to do. But it, it felt like, you know, there's a handful of five-minute songs on here that I feel like nothing happens. And, you know, I made the, the quip about it being 35 minutes earlier. And I actually felt kind of surprised. Like, how, wow, they how did they stretch one idea or two ideas into 35 minutes? Like, I actually had, like, a reverse-engineered kind of respect <laughs> for them in that sense. <laughs> I'll agree that it's not chock full of distinct ideas. And I'll also agree, and we'll talk about it when we get into the songs, that the second half has some some of those longer songs definitely overstay their welcome. I think yeah. they're tighter, generally, on the first half. So it's far from a perfect record. But I did enjoy it, and I did enjoy the patience. I've always said that patient is the best compliment I can levy upon a band, because I think it's one of the hardest things to be. As a band, so when you were talking about those other ecstatic bands that are building to some kind of gospel funk climax, it reminds me a little more, like, filter that concept of drones and repetition through Pink Floyd, through the Pink Floyd aesthetic, of just slow, steady, just wear them down approach to music. Yeah, I will say, you know, you talked about the beginning of the album being tighter than the end of the album. And I would agree with you on that. I think the main difference is on this album, what makes a three and a half minute song versus a five minute song, there is almost one minute of intro on every single song. Before the singing comes in, I think the shortest is like 30 seconds before the singing comes in. On almost every song, there's a minute of instrumentation before the singing comes in. And then on the long songs, there's a minute and a half of instrumentation after the singing is over at the end of the songs. And that's kind of what makes these five minute songs into five minute songs. They could have easily been three minute songs. Now I'm not saying that they would have been more effective that way, but I am saying that this is, they have definitely taken ideas and stretch Armstrong style, just pulled them to their absolute limits. Sometimes the better effect than others. Yeah. I should also say again, you know, I'm not trying to hedge or qualify here, but because I know I'm coming in, you know, kind of hot with this, but I think what rankled me a little bit more than normal with this is again back to the idea that I was really excited to listen to this and I wanted to to like it I wanted to know more about this band and I feel like the reverence that people have for them even outside of their hits to me I did not explore their entire catalog but I have to think there's other stuff out there that they're doing that's a little bit more unknown well Alan, it's interesting that you bring that up. The background of this band and the history to get to this album really plays a part, and actually what happens post this album as well, really plays a part in 
everybody's general perception of The Cure and how it is generally different than this album. And we're going to get to that, but first we are going to do The Cure by the numbers. All right, so because The Cure have three albums on this list, we're going to do a somewhat abbreviated by the numbers. And the first number that I'm going to throw out is 19. And that is the number of current and former members of The Cure. They have had a lot of personnel changes. The only consistent one throughout the entirety of this project has been Robert Smith. He sounds like he is a bit demanding to work with. (laughs) Kind of an asshole, if I'm being honest. What is the quote that he had? He basically said, The point of the group was never to be successful. The point of the group has always been so that I can do what I want. He is the guy. He's the main driving force behind this. So if you love it, it's all Robert Smith. If you hate it, it's all Robert Smith. He is certainly an opinionated guy, and he has been the glue that held the cure together for lo these 40 years. I was a little surprised to hear that when I read about that this week. I think in my mind, I thought of them more, maybe not as four or five guys who had been in it the entire time, but a little more of a consistent band aesthetic. But you know, we can get into it more. We've talked about it before. One person's idea of what is good is just, it typically makes for better art. We can say that. It's not an excuse to be a jerk, certainly. However, you got to have a leader and you got to have a vision. And a shared vision is amazing, but way more rare. Usually it's one person's vision and somebody else signs on to that and they stick with it forever. But there's one driving creative force behind the band. I can respect that. And I think. I can respect the idea that, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what's happening. I'm not trying to tell you it's good or or that it's the best. You either want in or you want out, and you make that decision. I think that that makes a lot of sense, you know, for sure. So the next number on our list is 17, which is how long the work days were when recording this album. Because due to budgetary constraints, they only had one week to record and mix this album. And so they basically stayed in the studio 17 hours a day, cranking this shit out to get it done. And I thought that was interesting. It did not sound like something that was rushed. Maybe because these songs don't sound rushed at all. I heard more than that. I heard that they slept in the main room of the studio during that time to save money as well. So not only did they work 17 hours a day, but then they just collapsed next to their setups. Yeah, rock and roll is so glamorous, isn't it? (laughs) The next number that I'm going to throw out is the number two, which is the number of years that Robert Smith put The Cure on hiatus in the mid-1980s, two albums after this album had already been released, so that he could join Susie and the Banshees and be their guitarist for two years. We did talk about that on the Susie Susie and the Banshee album, yeah. So that was after this? After this. Not only after this album, they put out two more albums after that, and then he put the band on hiatus for two years. Meaning they were a significant band with money on the table, and he still... Okay, so did it start... Do you have more context on this anecdote? Did it start with just a fill-in, and then he sort of officially joined the band or something? No, you're thinking of the first time that he was playing with Susie and the Banshees, Uh because he was in the band on two separate occasions, and we'll get to that as well. And then the last number is just one, 
which is the number of facial expressions that Robert Smith has in every fucking interview <laughs> I've ever seen, which is this kind of weird, like, I'm squinting at the sun and I'm kind of got my lip curled up, like, I don't want to fucking be here type of... He did not come across super great in the interviews that I saw with him. He seems like a tool. He has earned that. He's doing his own thing. I respect that. He seems like an asshole, though. He sort of leans into it. He doesn't shy away from being an asshole. Like, the quotes that he has are basically just, fuck everybody... This is my band, and if you don't like it, you can go to fucking hell. Hey, everybody, we'll get back to the show in less than a minute, but in that time, I have a request. If you've ever gotten any value from this podcast, whether you learned something new about your favorite band, laughed at one of our tweet-length reviews, or screamed at your podcast player for something we got wrong, please take a few seconds and leave us a rating and review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those two simple things can help spread the word about the show and help us continue to bring you our unique takes on music history, as well as all the bands you love and hate. So we're going to get into the background of The Cure leading up to this album. So they were officially formed in Crawley, West Sussex, which is an area about 30 miles south of London. These were grade school friends. These were like kids that got together in 1977, basically from the wreckage of a few different projects. A band originally known as Easy Cure was formed. Featuring Porl Thompson, which, by the way, a P-O-R-L is how the name is spelled. But when you hear it spoken by British people, it just sounds like Paul, which is odd. But hmm. so Pearl Thompson on guitar, Michael Dempsey on bass, Lal Tallsmith, whose real name is Lawrence, but he's on the drums. And Robert Smith, who at the time is playing guitar and not the lead singer of the band. They go through a couple of iterations. They have another lead singer, a couple of different lead singers during this time, none of whom are important, so we'll skip right over them. They end up getting a record contract after they win a talent show, and they're signed to a German label, Areola Hansa, which I'd never heard of this, but I kind of looked into it, and they're somewhat legit, that Areola had bought up a bunch of different labels at various points in time, so they were actually kind of a player. Basically, they get a record contract through this, a few shakeups happen, including that their lead singer decides to move and live on a kibbutz. Robert Smith takes over guitar playing and singing duties in the band. They basically get a record contract. Then it gets dissolved after they record some demos for the label. And the label say these demos fucking suck. And we're not releasing a song called Killing an Arab, which you want to be your first single. Which ends up getting released later, by the way, and actually does okay. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a reference to The Stranger, the novel, right? Yeah, it's not written. And actually, when they re-released the song later, they put all these disclaimers. It's not racist. It's basically talking about, you know, it's talking about racism, but it's not racist. But it's not a good start. It's not a great start. (laughs) Well, also, just the name Hansa did ring a bell, so I just quickly looked it up. That's that studio that was right next to the Berlin Wall, where... Bowie recorded Heroes, and they recorded the Iggy Pop stuff in the 70s and released that, and even where U2 did Octung Baby, or at least those guys operated that studio. Mm, okay. Just a little tie-in. Yeah. So, lead singer quits. Robert Smith takes over lead singing and guitar playing. Paul Thompson quits, or is potentially fired by Robert Smith. It's a little bit unclear. 
they sort of make it sound like he just left the band. But knowing what I kind of have read about Robert Smith, it sounds like he probably got fucking fired. And Robert Smith takes over lead singer and sole guitar playing duties. They rename themselves The Cure. At this point, they are a three-piece, three guys. They do a few more demos. Basically, they are like a minimalist wireframe pop punk band at this time. And one of their demos gets over to this guy, Chris Perry, at Polydor Records. Polydor Records, also a very legit record label. They are still in existence today. They had signed John Mayall, James Brown, Jimi Hendrix. They still have modern artists like Sam Fender and Billie Eilish. And of course, they have everybody's favorite artist, Eric Crapton. Also on Polydor Records. You're not winning me over here. (laughs) So this guy, Chris Perry, he's at Polydor. He hears their demo. But Chris Perry had just gotten a carve-out label. One of those where he is a guy who's been working there for a while. And they say, we're going to give you your own label. You can get your own stable of artists under your own label. And so he has started this label called Fiction Records. And he hears the cure. And he decides that they are going to be the first artist in his stable he also manages the cure and he also is a producer for the cure so he kind of takes over a lot of the creative responsibility of the band at the time they go into the studio and they release their first album which is called three imaginary boys i'm very familiar with this album i own this album i actually think it's kind of a great album but it sounds absolutely nothing like this album at all it sounds nothing like 17 seconds it is a three-piece, minimal guitars, kind of new wavy, a little bit of, like I said, like power pop. Like power pop, yeah. Yeah. Is this the one with Boys Don't Cry on this it? This is the one with Boys Don't Cry on it, yeah. Yeah, because that almost reads like a Blink-182 song in terms Absolutely. of the instrumentation. Absolutely. It's like, we'll get into this album in particular. Basically, Robert Smith hates this album. They had no control <laughs> over anything. I hate the one that's good. I like the album. It's a good album, but it clearly was not his vision. He said that they had no control over the artwork. They are not featured on the cover of oh, the artwork. Their own this album. photo was what is what the creative control he was really like dying to rest control over. Well, the <laughs> picture of a tree. Fair enough, but on three imaginary boys, it has been posited that kind of like a diss to them. They replaced them with three appliances. Because they were actually, at the time, not Robert Smith with the big hair and the makeup. They just looked like ordinary motherfuckers. And so they put, like, a vacuum cleaner and a refrigerator and a lamp, like, on the cover. And that was what they... The band does not appear on the album at all. I think that's kind of great, for the record. I think the album cover's cool. I don't mind the album cover. I think it's actually kind of cool as well. But Robert Smith hated it. Robert Smith was like, I didn't have any input in it. Basically, they went into the studio. They recorded a bunch of songs. They had no input as to what songs got on the album. Mm. So there is a cover of Foxy Lady the Jimi Hendrix song <laughs> on that album. Okay. I take everything back. <laughs> it was them doing like a sound check, basically fucking around. And it sounds like they're fucking around. And apparently this guy, Chris Perry was like, no, we're going to put that on your album, but never told them they had no input that in that whatsoever. And so the album comes out and they're like, this is not us as a band. This is us just fucking around in the studio. And you put this on our debut album. This is kind of not, what we're trying to execute on at all. And so he was very upset because 
basically Chris Perry and the engineer on the album, Mike Hedges, were the two people that basically they went into the album, they, were, they went into the studio, they recorded this album, and then they just took it and put out an album with no input from the band after that. Robert Smith gets really pissed off about it. He says that he was inexperienced and they had these two industry vets that were basically just like, just shut up. We're going to take, we're going to take over from here and you don't, you don't need to worry your pretty little head about it and puts out this album and they made all the decisions about how the songs would sound. They made decisions of which songs would be on there. It's funny. There's an aside on Mike Hedges Wikipedia page that says that he had a dramatic influence on the sound of the cure. It's like, yeah, the influence was basically Robert Smith hated what you did to his album so much that he decided he wanted to make the antithesis of that album for the next one, which became the sound of the fucking cure, which I find to be very funny. So Three Imaginary Boys, it does okay. It's well received critically. It's not a huge seller. It doesn't go gold, doesn't go platinum, none of that stuff. But it sells enough and it gets them enough cred that they get a supporting position on the Susie and the Banshees tour. And this is what changes the course of the cure forever. We talked about it in the Susie and the Banshees episode. Two shows into their tour, which was like all over England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, their guitar player quits. And Robert Smith has to step in and play guitar for both the cure and for Susie and the Banshees because they don't have a guitar player. And to hear him tell it, the first time that he got up on stage and played with Susie and the Banshees, he was like, this is so much fucking better than what The Cure is doing. Like, incomparably better. The songs are better. The crowd reaction is better. They're cooler. Everything about this makes me want to be in a different band. And so he sort of looks at what The Cure is doing on stage with the three imaginary boy songs and looks at what Susie and the Banshees are doing and says... I want to do this. I don't want to do it. I want to have nothing to do with the old iteration of The Cure. Which, you know, I'm not saying he's wrong for that, but we talked about Susie and the Banshees were the originators of this gothic sound. And so that's why I can't say The Cure created this gothic sound. It's because basically Robert Smith started playing with Susie and the Banshees, learned a bunch of their songs, and was like, I want to take this sound and bring it to my band and make albums like this from now on. Seems valid, honestly. I mean, crowd reaction is better. Like, no crap. They're the headliner, man. Yeah, right? Right. The deck is stacked a little bit, I think, in in that sense. And I think there's, like, novelty in jumping into an already established thing versus doing the work of building it up from the ground floor. You know, there's... I, I can totally see why he would have that reaction. Absolutely. And bear in mind, also, at the time, I cannot stress this enough, Robert Smith... You've seen pictures of Robert Smith, everybody out there. The big, crazy, teased-up hair, the crazy makeup and everything. He does not look like that at all. He just looks like a normal dude with a haircut, like a normal guy haircut. Short hair. Yeah, like he has a short haircut. And so when Susie, who is a fashion maven, is getting up there and just owning the crowd, I think he looked at her and was like, I want to model a lot of who I want to be as a front person on what she is doing in fact the classic robert smith look which comes a little bit later actually came from him being out on the town with Susie sue smashed out of his fucking mind on opiates and they didn't say whether it was heroin or what they said he was smashed out of his mind on opiates 
and as a joke was like, oh, I'm going to put makeup on and intended to put it on well but was just so fucked up that it just like <laughs> smeared all over his face and then was like, I'm going to just dress like this for the next 40 fucking years. Basically, his entire persona <laughs> was built off of like a drunken night out. People were like, that looks good. He was like, oh, really? Okay. And he's holding strong to that. He's still doing oh, that. Oh, yeah. You know? He's going on Charlie Rose like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he went for it. But it works. You know, it really does work. It's a look. It's distinctive. You say Robert Smith. People who are fans of music know who Robert Smith is and what he looks like. Which is especially impressive because his name is so bland. Yeah. Bob Smith. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah I, I figured like an alter ego would have been in order at some point, a stage name maybe. No, nah, you just got to have a stage haircut, I guess. <laughs> Like Robert Smith at home, is he just is he doing that when he wakes up in the morning? He's just teasing his hair up to go out to eat his fucking omelet with his kids or something like that. Is that what he's doing? <laughs> it is funny that whole aesthetic. I think we've talked about it before. Of like, oh, I don't care what I look like, but you kind of do. Oh, you really do. You got to spend a lot of time looking the way you do. There's the undeniable. Yeah, it takes a long time to uncaringly apply mascara to your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's on tour with the Banshees, and he's like, they're cooler, they're better. We should be like them. And he is looking at his band. And he's like, I kind of hate our material. I don't like Three Imaginary Boys anymore. It seems like he kind of thought he was in a cool band, even though he didn't have a lot of artistic control of that. And they went out, and the first thing that they did was tour with a band that just showed him up every night. And he was like, ah, fuck. Like, we could be cooler. We could be better. Let's do this instead. And so he basically decides that he wants to make a refutation of Three Imaginary Boys. He wants to make the exact opposite of that album. It's going to be more pensive. It's going to have longer songs. It's going to be more layered. I mean, if you look at Three Imaginary Boys, I think the longest song on Three Imaginary Boys is three minutes and 44 seconds. They're routinely two-minute songs. And they were power pop. And he's like, I want to be the opposite of pop. I want to be the opposite of powerful. I want to make something that is atmospheric. I want to make something that is gothic, very much in the vein of Susie and the Banshees, who I will give the credit for being the creators of gothic rock. Now, to hear Robert Smith say it, The Cure are not gothic rock, but that is the most gothic rock thing in the world to say. <laughs> well, but Susie and the Banshees also tried to distance themselves from that title. Yeah. So I, I think it's it's just that feeling of like, hey, you can't box me into this title but yeah i mean it is what it is so he starts putting together some songs for 17 seconds again to be a refutation of what they had done in their previous album and for the rest of the members of the band it comes out of left field so much so that mike dempsey bassist and founding member of the cure is like hey man i hate these songs why don't we do more stuff like Three Imaginary Boys? I like that stuff. That stuff got us, got us kind of popular. We should do that. If you continue to go down this route, I'm going to quit the band. And Robert Smith says, yeah, fuck you. I don't care. And hires another bass player. <laughs> that was not a financially prudent decision, I'm sure. No. <laughs> but I kind of agree with him in terms of content. On one hand, I wasn't sure the history of who, whether this guy was fired, whether he quit. But it was not lost on me, though, in listening to this. That there would, there's bass player churn, and this is what you get. Like, the, 
like you're shuffling through musicians and but there's no there's nothing on here that you could have like a, a machine playing bass on this album i think the lesson to be learned here is bass players should not issue ultimatums <laughs> yeah unless your name is sting <laughs> <laughs> or flea come on <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, or Getty Lee. Okay, so we've exhausted the three guys. <laughs> but either way, I have to say that they hire Simon Gallup on the bass. And I think Simon Gallup is a good bass player. And I think that on this album, he does what is needed to fit the songs. And I also think that Simon Gallup wrote what is, in my opinion, the best pop bass line of all time. In close to me. I think that that is another one that is not complex at all. He's not showing off. He's doing exactly what the song needs to have. And that makes it infectious. And that makes it elevated. And so I think that he is actually a quite a good bass player. And he ends up becoming the second longest serving person in The Cure. I believe he's still in The Cure to this day. So there's no more bass player churn after this. They had the original bass player who quit, and then they got Simon Gallup, and Simon Gallup has been riding this gig all the way to fucking money town, and good for him. I think all the players show a certain level of restraint, especially the bass player. So I don't think it's that's always the easiest thing to find, but I guess we'll talk about it in the midst of the songs. Sure. One more personnel addition is that they hire Matthew Hartley to join the band, who also was in the same band that Simon Gallup was. They basically just stole the keys player and the bass player from that band, which is, again, not the coolest move, especially in such an incestuous music scene where everybody kind of knows each other. But either way, they get their crew together. Now we have the four people who are on 17 seconds. It's decided. Smith says, we're going down this route. We're going dark. They get to the studio. And who is producing this album? Mike Hedges. The guy who was the engineer on the previous album that took a lot of control away from Robert Smith and that Robert Smith hated the results from. And they have a not a clash, but Robert Smith comes in and says, like, I am in control of this session. I will be co-producing it with you because you are not necessarily laid it on us by the studio. But he walks in and says, like, I'm making the choices here. You can make it sound good. You can control the way that shit's microphone you can control the way that shit's recorded i'm going to be executing on my vision which i feel like takes some stones honestly and clearly it was the right call he knew what he wanted to do but i mean these guys are what like 20 years old at that point 22 i I don't know the exact age but i feel like it takes some guts to do that oh no absolutely in terms of again you had an album that wasn't a huge hit i'm sure by many standards it was a flop and you will roll in and you're 20 at the time because this is 1979 then 78 79 that they're recording he was born in 59 so he's like 19 20 years old and he's like no i have a vision we're gonna fucking execute on this one no i'm sorry i'm sorry this was recorded in 1979 released in 1980 again a lot of credit the man said i know what i want and that generally tends to lead to very stark consequences be they great or be they terrible i respect a person who can walk in to a guy who's been in the game for a long time and say yeah i know you know what was popular five years ago but fuck you i don't care we're making something new and not that this gothic sound was necessarily new but it was definitely cutting edge 
I like just the balls of walking into a studio and saying we're going to make something new. Just even having that idea in your head. I think the longer we do this podcast, the more these records we talk about, it makes me examine the fact that I've never had that thought in my head walking into the studio. I'm trying to make something good, and I'm trying to do justice by the songs that we've written or practiced together. But brand new, that feels like a whole different vibe to me. Well, it also takes a certain level of hubris, I think. And I don't I don't say that disparagingly, but I mean, you really have to be pretty full of yourself to to feel like you can actually do that. And clearly, a lot of these guys who are breaking ground, whether it's ground that <laughs> the, the extent of the ground breaking, I think, is up for debate. But yeah, you, you got to have you got to have an ego to have that train of thought. And the proof was kind of in the pudding. Now, we have to couch this in terms of this was not a platinum album. The Cure have sold 30 million records over the course of their career, but that happened a little bit later. And we'll touch on it in a bit, but essentially, if you look at the arc of The Cure, they started off power pop, and then they did the refutation of power pop and went gothic. And then they went on hiatus for a little bit, and they came back as gothic pop and that's where they hit it fucking huge that was where like disintegration came out that's where they had just like heaven that's where they had love song that's gothic pop which is what i think people are a little bit more familiar with their later stuff so they were pop then they went gothic and then they synthesized the two into gothic pop and i've realized that that is the era of the cure that i like the most is the kind of gothic pop era but there are a lot of very hardcore Cure fans that would say that this is the best album that they have ever put out. So let's dive in to some of these songs and you dear listeners can listen along with us and say whether or not you agree that this is the best album that the Cure has ever put out. We are going to discuss first the track that is not the opening track on the album because the opening track on the album a reflection is just two minutes and 12 seconds of instrumentation. And we want to talk about something that has actually has some lyrics. So we're going to play the second song. It's called play for today. intro track i thought this was a great payoff from that intro track the older i get the more i think it's risky 
to put a growing, slow burn opening intro track on records, even though it is really common. If you're going to do it, what's really important is that it slides into track two and you get some sense of payoff. And when I was listening to the record, that's what I felt the song represented. I also think there's a lot of really interesting sounds in this. What is that? Is that a fucked up cymbal sound right in the opening? They're doing some interesting noise that I like. I think that what happened with the recording of this album is they had a guy who was an engineer who came in and was like, I'm going to be a producer. And Robert Smith was like, no, no, no. I'm making the production choices. Focus all of your time on making the cool sounds, making shit sound good. Yeah. Which is a pretty good move, I got to say. If you as an artist have a vision and you have a guy who's hyper-technically competent in the studio, be like, no, no, just focus on making the song sound good. Focus on making the individual instruments be recorded well. Have pop to them. And pop meaning, like, make them appear on the tape the way that I want them to. I heard even that they did some cymbal overdubs to make sure that they sustained super-duper long. And I think you can hear some of that on this on this track. So definitely some care was put in. They only had a very limited amount of time to mix it. So I imagine that trying to mix in cymbal overdubs, if you can hear where the overdub happens, that usually means that it's not being mixed appropriately. Yeah, fair enough. I did notice some mixing problems. Although honestly, when I went back and only briefly glanced at the first record, I heard more mixing inconsistency on that one. So to me, this felt like a more complete production at the face of it. I'll throw Alan a bone which is I have a complaint. The guitar, although melodically is a breath of fresh air, again, coming off that intro track, I really enjoyed it. It gets a little too busy with the harmonics. I would have played less. I do think the band and the sound is about restraint. I think generally they're pretty good at it. And this is a case where I think both in the very beginning with the harmonics line on the guitar and in the outro, he's sort of overplaying his part. Well, and the... I don't even know if you would call it a solo, I guess, in parlance of normal songs. It would be a, a guitar solo, but there's some guitar work, like two-thirds in, that seems like it's a little bit of a mess. There's also, I don't know if that sound you're referring to is the, like, whoosh that happens on, like, the offbeats, but I feel like every song seems to have that. There's some sort of, like, whoosh or swoosh that happens where, I don't know, that was, like, a new button on the synth that they got, and it's like, yeah, let's fucking beat this one into the ground. It's the wind blowing through the trees in the dark, creepy forest, Alan. Come on. Oh, uh, <laughs> sorry. I... <laughs> I think they did a lot of weird things with the drum kit. I read that they unhooked the snares for some of the drum stuff. The drums are really dry, and to the point where they almost sound like drum machine stuff on some of the tracks. This sounds like early e-drums, yeah. But, like, better than an early e-drum kit could have sounded. Yeah, I just I think there are a lot of interesting things, touches going on with how they record the drums or how they use the drums. And again, a hyper-competent engineer will get you that. I found it very interesting that the opening lines of this song are a thesis for this album and also the direction of The Cure from here on out and also kind of Robert Smith in general. The opening lines are, it's not a case of doing what's right. It's just the way I feel that matters. Tell me I'm wrong. I don't really care. It's not a case of share and share alike. I take what I require. 
which is like, yeah, I'm an asshole. Fuck you. I don't care. I know what I want. And I respect it. I really do. I respect it. Yeah. I think there's some self-awareness with that for sure. Yeah, I can respect that. Overall, it's funny that this album, generally speaking, and this song also, is not bold. It's not in your face. It's not overpowering. However, in the context of their career, it's a very bold album because they did decide to make such a left turn from what had got them to where they are that I really did have to respect that. And this song's cool. It has that thing where they do kind of get you a little bit lulled and they jump into some weird chord choices that kind of derail me a little bit. But overall, I got to say, it's got a driving beat. No hook, but I do like the song. I found this one to be a song that upon second, third, and fourth listens, I was like, oh, yeah. Now, there's more going on here than I would have given them credit for initially. Yeah, I sort of graded this one on a curve to an extent as well. On my first pass through it, I was extremely underwhelmed by this track. I still am, but in relation to a lot of the other songs, I I came out the other side feeling like, okay, this is actually one of the stronger tracks this is one of the albums i you know i always play that game where i i try to guess like okay what's the high point what's the low point what's the single i wasn't sure you know where this one kind of fit into that but yeah i just it does have a driving beat i think some of the constituent parts are decent like they're okay but i just don't feel like they're saying anything anyone could sit down behind a drum kit and go but i i just i didn't think it really went anywhere personally well, you know, that's a, that's your opinion. You can have that. <laughs> that's my opinion, man. <laughs> Let's go into the second song that we're going to talk about, which is actually just the next song on 17 Seconds. So track three, Secrets. <laughs> So this was my least favorite song on the album. Did not like this one at all. What's with the mixing on this? I don't normally key into the mix, things being louder than others. But the vo- were the vocals, is that like a conscious decision? Was that part of like the theme of being spooky as having the vocals like barely audible? Because it, uh, it just felt weird. I like how the term vocals is appropriate here because there's two lead vocals and you can barely hear either of them. <laughs> one of them is like shouted from the other room and one of them is kind of whisper talked to you. And this was the remastered version on Spotify. Like you had a chance to fix this. So it has to be intentional, but I thought it was distracting. 
I thought it was kind of rhythmically interesting, but I agree, mixing-wise, it suffered. But I wanted to call out one particular moment of weird or bad mixing, which is at about 2.20, they put out the understated piano melody. They're doing this thing where the melody is like passing between instruments, goes from the bass to like an acoustic guitar, then it goes to this haunted piano, and the piano's just sitting there, plucking through the melody, sitting in the center of the mix, and then for... Three seconds at 2.36, they turn the reverb way up and they throw the piano to the far left side for like literally four (laughs) notes. They were trying things, man. They were going for it. I actually really like the piano treatment that they give. The piano comes in like right around 150. And we were just in a studio with a piano a couple of weeks ago. And how do you mic the piano? We had an upright. You had the upright piano. You had the kind of front cover off. You have the two microphones pointing right where the strings are being hit by the hammers from the piano. This sounds like it was recorded from the other side of the room. And I actually really dug that. It gave it a nice room sound. It gave it a little bit of a, again, creepy spookiness to it. I thought that was a tasty choice. Don't have a problem with how they mixed it. And I actually, this is the instrument, sorry, this is the song where I noticed this trick they have of taking one simple melody and throwing it around the band room. I think it's kind of a cool little trick. And I, after this song, I tuned into it more. But the one piano thing I just mentioned, it feels like it's a mistake. Like either... Did they try to overdub that one line of piano? I'm just trying to think of how they got there because it happens. It's such a short amount of time. Just seems very strange. Somebody just like tripped and fell on the slider for a second and just. <laughs> That's what it seems like. Yeah, that sort of makes sense. When you, if this was as rushed or if they were so hard up for studio time that you know they would let something like this go. I actually did think this was a decent song i i didn't think this would have been one of the singles i'm not sure if it was or not i thought there was some uh, some cool guitar work i thought some of the uh, there were a few like little acoustic runs that are in there that i thought were like kind of nice so this one i thought the bass work was good as well yeah just the acoustic guitar being in there at all was like a breath of organic fresh air i liked it i think what stood out to me i'm, I'm like half and half on this song overall because I do think the melody line is itself one of the more interesting melody lines, the one that the instruments are playing. And the acoustic guitar jumped out to me. One more production complaint, though, and it just feels like it was sitting right there for The Cure. They should have faded this song. For a song like this, for bands like this, to have songs that just end abruptly, it makes no sense to me. It totally takes, that takes me out of the vibe. I'll agree with that. They did not write a lot of good endings on this album generally speaking. And there should have been more fades. Certainly. And when you don't do that, you should fade. That's, you should fade, yes. That's the coverall. <laughs> yeah, and frankly, even in our recording history, we will fade songs, but it is very, very rare that you get to the end of that fade and we just sort of stop or fall apart. Usually there's an actual ending and you just fade before you get to the actual ending. Something. Or you do the yeah. rock and roll ending and you just do the... 
everyone plays and that's sort of like, yeah <laughs> i think what we're saying is this i think there's two reasons to fade one is you literally didn't write an ending and nothing's gonna change and that's the only reasonable way to end the song uh, for the recording the other one which i think we use more and feels more 70s rock and roll is where you're b- doing this additive production as the fade is happening mm-hmm. and ideally you bring in some really cool element right in the middle of the fade just to tease the listener's ear to be like, Oh, what could have happened if I had continued listening and make it sounds like it goes on forever. It's like, Oh, we exactly. just walked out of the room and the band's going to keep playing for a million years. But we've joked so many times about how so many recordings have that sweet bass lick right around the time of the fade. Like yeah, that was when yeah. the engineer was like, Oh, the bass player's going off. I need to get out of here. <laughs> well, it's probably because the bass player fucks up on like the next phrase after that. I'm like, Oh shit. Okay. We got to cut. So, like waiting that. the whole time just for, for my chance to throw the lick in. So I thought that on this song, again, I did not like the song very much, but I did feel like production wise, they maximalized the minimalist aspect of it. They got a lot out of the minimalism on this song. And so I can respect that, but I cannot get over the vocal treatment. It was terrible. It was stupid. It was a baffling choice. And I can't listen to this song again and not be annoyed by that choice. There was a cool version of this song that has the vocals more out in front. Robert Smith made a bad choice on this one. Yeah. It seems like a weird place to try to do something different. Like, I think there you have a whole palette to work with, but to say, let's make the vocals basically inaudible. I don't, I don't see the upside necessarily. Yeah. I definitely don't see the upside. Let's move on to the next song on our focus list, which is a forest. So I had to hold my tongue a little bit from the last segment as we were talking about terrible endings. The ending of this song is just a few bass notes that just hit the one for what seemed like forever. I know it's only maybe a bar or a measure, but it's so weak. I just don't understand why they couldn't figure out a better ending to this song. (laughs) 
I also was shocked that this is the single and this is the one that shows up on greatest hits records from this album because like I do not hear a single on this in any stretch. There are many people who say that this is the greatest cure song ever recorded. I'm not going to go that far, but I like this song. <laughs> Please ex- like enlighten me. I am here with an open mind and I'm ready to be educated because I don't get it. Well, I don't think it's about education. It's probably about feeling something. Are you capable of that, El? No, I, it's not in this song. <laughs> I disagree entirely. I thought this slapped. I did see it had the most plays on Spotify, so I suppose I was primed to think of it as the single. But that said, the first time I was just listening to it, I perked my head up when it came on. And I was like, oh, this would fit in a dance club right now. To me, this would totally work. So to me, it is it is the best version of their aesthetic on the record, and thus a good choice for the single. And it kind of, it doesn't have, we've, we've already said it, but there's not a ton of distinct ideas throughout this record. They're playing around with a couple simple ideas and just reshaping them for different songs. But to me, this one is the best encapsulation of what the record is about. This is definitely my favorite song on the record. It's a nice slow burn. It really does build to an understated intensity. And you don't often say that. It's so understated and intense, but it is. I feel like there was an understated intensity to it. And I know it's super simple, but the drums on this, again, very solid. They're not doing anything crazy, but they do have that e-drum sound. It sounds like an early iteration of an e-drum kit, but it's clearly organic. It's a nice driving and ominous song. It's kind of haunting. They do a thing at 347. All right. So there's the vocals that are happening and they have delay on them. And then at 347, they change the delay frequency. They change like the return rate on the delay to make it come back more frequently. And that was just a very subtle but very kind of tasty trick. I perked my ear up and I was like, has there been delay on this before? And I listened back and I was like, oh, there has been delay, but it was way more subtle. And then they cranked the delay up basically for the last verse. And I thought that was really cool. Again, it's just a it's a, a tasteful little trick. You're hitting on something else, with which is one of the reasons I think it's the most successful track is because of that build at the beginning. It feels like this is the one time they really land the intro, and this song justifies the longer length. And I agree the delay thing is cool. I just agree the tones in general in this record are cool. We've been talking about the drums. We really talk about the bass tone yet, more the bass playing. But can we mention the guitar tone as well? I think there's some interesting things going on. I know it's chorus pedal, it's flange, it's double mic'd amps. It's nothing insanely revolutionary, but it's all pretty tasty to me, and it fits with the rest of what they're doing. And if you listen to the beginning of this song, I think what you're going to get from them, maybe this is an attempt at encapsulating why they're interesting to me, Alan. They are able to ring a lot out of only a couple notes. And Tom, you referenced, and I have to admit, I didn't even know the name of that big hit song 
what is it called? Close to you? Close to me. Yeah. <laughs> that does that similarly. That uses like three notes in the riff, but it's iconic, right? I think they have a knack for that of, oh, what notes aren't there that you're sort of just imagining are there? To me, this song does that as well. I do agree that the minimalist aspect is something that they do pretty well. Like they do get a, a decently big sound out of their small amount of instrumentation or almost like essentialism, you know, more so than maybe than minimalism. It's sort of like just the, the minimum effective dose, I think, is all right in, in this album. I But I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not hearing the build as much in this song. I feel like after about a minute and a half, the drums sort of kick in and it gets going, but it it's it just sort of like rides the same tempo and I don't feel like a build necessarily for this song. It's subtle. It's a subtle build. And I think a lot of this album is subtle in general. I do agree though. I think you both probably made a point that if somebody released this song right now, I would not think anything of it. I'd be like, oh, that sounds like a I don't know, Harry Styles or whatever, you know, kind of tune. Like it would fit in in the modern landscape, no doubt. And I wanna just again highlight the absolute difference between this being a single off of this album and the singles from their previous albums. You got like Killing an Arab and Boys Don't Cry. Listen to Boys Don't Cry and then listen to this and then say these are two singles from the same band released within like 14 months of each other. The amount of progression that they had as a band in between those and again the bold choice to make this kind of an album after having a huge hit, not even a huge hit, but like after getting famous and a record contract off of that previous sound, I really got to give it to them. I equate it to Radiohead. Radiohead's big hit was Creep. And then what's their next single? Fake Plastic Trees after that on the next album. You know, you go from Pablo Honey to, oh, Jesus Christ. The Benz. The, the Benz, yes. Which... It's awesome. Like, I like it when bands do that. I like it when bands take chances. Even if I don't necessarily like the outcome, I like the outcome on this song. But let's go on to the next song on our focus list. It is called At Night. Um, did this remind you of any of our songs, at least at the beginning? No, that, that did not occur to me. Which which song? It really reminded me of the beginning of Smoke Mountain from the Ghost Beef record. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. 
in general, I liked how this song started. This gave me strong Nine Inch Nails vibes. I like how they managed to include some crunchy dissonance in this song. I think yeah. there was some dissonance in one of the other tunes. But I don't think it sustains its length. I, I, I think it's too long. And it's indicative of some of these second side indulgences. But I, I dig the groove a lot. Like, I liked it for three minutes. Yeah, that sawtooth bass sound kind of digging. Like, I like that a lot. I thought that was really cool. I do like the bass tone on this. And it's overdriven, but not to the point of, like, gross distortion. Like, it fits the vibe that they're trying to do. But I... Again, like nothing happens in this song. Pull up the track and just play at different points in the song. It sounds the exact same for almost six minutes. And I know that's what they're trying to do. But to be clear, that's the nature of ambient music. And that is the difference. You know, when I referenced our song, Tom Smoke Mountain, we have a part that sounds a little bit like that, that's intended to make you feel some tension so that when we go to part B... (laughs) It's more rock and roll. And The Cure never do stuff like that. I, I, I agree with that, and I get why that can be a little frustrating and make you feel like some of the songs never take off. But I assure you, it is intentional. For sure. Of course it's intentional. I mean, they obviously had the agency to be able to make this shorter if they wanted to. I, I think what I'm saying is, like, I don't have a problem with ambient music, and I like some ambient music. I mentioned earlier, the shit I like is tends to be a little bit more groove-oriented. But I think it's because of that. I think... Six minutes of boredom to me is like, <laughs> if if it's six minutes of like a decent groove, I, I can listen to that. I just, I think groove and ambient are inherently different though. Let's just be clear here. We're talking about ambient. We're talking about Brian Eno. We're talking about synth records. Alan, you're talking about like trip hop or something like that, that has a little bit more of that kind of beat oriented music that is then layered with ambient sounds on top yeah, of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about like Jean-Michel Jarre or somebody like that. There's no groove in there. I bring up that genre only to say I don't want to come across as sounding like I'm, you know, I need shit like spoon fed to me or that I can't handle something that is sounds the same for six minutes. Yeah, you just need more Carly Rae Jepsen albums, you know, like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, we're going we're going deep now. (laughs) Listen, I thought that this was a slow burn, but I also think that the song falls apart when the singing comes in. And I I was not a big fan of this one. Again, it grew on me over time, but I feel like there was potential in the song that wasn't quite realized. And a big part of it is that, again, when I feel when the singing comes in, I feel like it kind of just falls apart. We're going to go on to the last song on our focus list and the last song on the album. This is the song, the title track, 17 Seconds.
Can I just say from the get-go that I have a problem with sibilance? I feel like my S's, I have a lot of hiss on my S's, and so fuck you, The Cure, for making me say 17 seconds over and over and over again. <laughs> Fucking bastards. This song is boring as shit. I did not like this song at all. Could not get down with this one. I would agree. I listed this as my low point as well. Two chords in total is not enough to sustain a four-minute song. You don't... That's ambient music, man. You gotta just get over it, Rob. No. <laughs> And I needed another part in here. I think the other songs balance that ride that line a little better. I wanted to point out too that I think almost all these songs they do have a formula for songwriting. Tom, you alluded to it with their long intros, but rarely does the band all start together hmm. on any track. I think at night might be the only exception to that rule. And I just feel like in this track, seventeen seconds. If you're going to start with just drums, it better be a compelling drum beat. This make build a beat one drum at a time thing, it's not a compelling way to start a song. It does sound like a drum machine. They start at quarter time, basically. It's not even half time drums. It's like quarter time drums. And I think that they were enamored with that concept, but the execution is just like, oh my God, when the fuck is anything going to happen here? Well, especially when the chords come in, like there's... It's just riffing, like, you could pick this out of, like, a Tom Petty chord songbook. I, Look, we already agreed with you, Alan. What do you want? <laughs> just I, just to feel the, the anger pulsing through your veins the way I feel it. Only hate can make you strong. Well. Let, let the hate flow through you. So we agreed with Alan on this song, but let's see. Are we all in agreement about this album? We are now going to vote and tell you whether or not, dear listener, you really do need to listen to this album before you die. And my breath is baited. I'm throwing it over to Alan. What's your vote? Oh, he definitely needs to be on the lit. <laughs> I wish this were a video so people could see. I'm, I'm actually putting on my armor to defend myself against the hate mail that we're going to get because I know the Cure fans are out there and they're coming for me and... I'm a little scared, to be honest, but I'm putting on the armor. I mentioned this earlier. They're an iconic band. They're a hugely accomplished band. I, I do have respect for them. I, I didn't intend to come here and just patently shit on them. But to me, there's almost no redeeming value. I find this album to be one of the most boring pieces of music that I've heard in a long time. I think it's dull. I think it's lifeless. It's a no for me. I'm just going to stop there. The funny thing <laughs> is, Alan, I... Could not imagine a less intimidating fan base than a bunch of Cure fans <laughs> coming to kick your ass. <laughs> You're like, hold we'll on, see. let me get my bangs out of my eyes before I can see you as I try to hit you. Like, come on. I don't know. There's a lot of anger there, though, I think. It's simmering. I think angst and anger are different. <laughs> That's one of them. <laughs> All right. So we have one no from Alan. Surprise there. Rob, what say you, good sir? Yeah, it's got to be yes for me. As I mentioned, I was coming in pretty fresh to the band. I think there's an entire universe and maybe even an entire genre. And according to what you've told us here, Tom, the start of an entire band's way of thinking about music, or at least this part of the music that made them really, really popular, is contained in this album. I even heard Robert Smith say, because he hated that first album so much, that he considers this the first Cure album. I will definitely be listening to it again. And so for all those reasons, I say it's a must listen. All right. 
One yes, one no. Down to me, the deciding vote in the catbird seat, as they say. I'm going to say yes. I really do think that you can see a lineage from this album to not only later Cure, which I like a lot, but a lot of other later 80s music. And you can't deny that their aesthetic really did catch on and really did influence a lot of other groups. Even if it is also equally fair to say that they cribbed a decent amount of their vibe and sound off of another band, I still think that they are important. Again, they sold 30 million albums. They've been hugely influential. And so it's a yes from me. You're on the list, The Cure, in this particular iteration, which is not even close to what your current iteration is because Robert Smith fired almost everybody in the band. (laughs) Good for you. Everybody steals everything. I don't have an inherent problem with that. And we didn't mention the band The Smiths, but I think Johnny Moore as a guitar player was definitely listening to this to get some inspiration. I think Johnny Moore was more listening to Susie and the Banshees' Juju, personally. We talked about that on the episode. It's very... Super strummy. The more that I have distance from that, which, by the way, fans, if you're wondering, it's episode 106, Susie and the Banshees, Juju. The more distance I have from that particular album, the more I've come to appreciate that album and realize that it actually was kind of a watershed album and that they don't get a lot of credit. The Cure get a ton of credit. Susie and the Banshees, I feel like, do not get nearly as much credit, at least with American audiences. I know they were much bigger in the U.K., But we're not talking about Susie and the Banshees. We're talking about The Cure. You're on the list, baby. Good for you. We got a couple of things left, dear listeners, before we wrap it up. First, I'm going to throw it on over to Rob, who is going to reach his hand into that mailbag and pick us out some tone poems. Indeed. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, we have a couple missives here. One coming from listener David. He says, listening to the New York Dolls podcast, it reminded me of the original pompous, mocking, and cloth-eared reviews of the album. Listen, I'll take pompous and mocking, but cloth-eared, you go straight to hell. (laughs) (laughs) To me, it's an absolute classic. Still sounds fresh today. Thank you, a music lover from England. Actually, I'm going to look up, what did I vote on the New York Dolls? I'm going to see, what did I vote here? I'm pretty sure we voted it on as a group. I think we voted on as a group. I might have been a no on that one. Usually when someone yells at us in this way, they sign off with some kind of, thank you for producing all this great free content <laughs> for me, doing all this research. He didn't say anything like that. So I'm not really sure if he's a fan, but we do know he likes music and... Hey, listen, we added it to the list. We have one more. Listener Bill writes, fellow music lovers and complainers, I discovered your podcast about three months ago. I'm most of the way through your catalog. What fun with piss and vinegar (laughs) flowing. You guys are like my high school buddies that I still hang with. So now I hang with you for a few hours a week to listen to you talk about music. He wants to call out specifically the Crime of the Century podcast, the Super Tramp album we did a few episodes back, he talks about pulling it out of the bin at the record store onto the turntable late at night after the bars. Oh my God, this is the listenable prog rock I expected from Genesis or King Crimson without the virtuosity. This became a mainstay for years. I still have the vinyl. And after listening to your take, I think you're spot on. Some great moments and then get on with it. Super tramp, he means. 
He closes by saying, in a world of music streaming, you guys are a godsend to the pocketbook. Keep on with your musically insightful takes, as well as the snarky takes. I learn, I disagree, and I laugh. What could be better? I think that saying that you picture listening to our podcast as like a weekly hang session is the greatest compliment we have ever received. So thank you very much. That's how I view this. We did this so we could start hanging out and talking shit about music. I really am glad when other people feel like they are able to come in to this experience. It's fantastic for us. I hope it's fantastic for you. All that we have left to do is to decide what we are going to listen to next week. I have the Albinator in the corner. It's been brooding. It's got a really crazy hairstyle and smeared lipstick all over yeah it's smeared lipstick everywhere it looks like it's a hobo who just it's set to sad clown <laughs> yes that's a sad clown exactly i was gonna say a hobo who just robbed a cvs and then realizes he has no use for makeup so he smears it all over his face so we got the albinator here we're gonna give it a spin and find out what we're gonna be listening to next week without any further ado drum roll please we will be listening to You know, it's funny, Rob, earlier on in the episode, you referenced The Cure song, and you said, what's it called, like, Close to You or something? That song is called Mm. Close to Me. This album is Close to You by The Carpenters. (laughs) Yeah. So we will be listening to Close to You by The Carpenters. I think we're going to have a little tonal whiplash (laughs) on this. Yeah, I... (laughs) This is a throwback. I don't I don't really know much about I mean I know of them, of course, but yeah, this will be interesting. I know this song mostly from the Simpsons episode where Marge gets the doorbell that has this suddenly a song by do bird and it just keeps playing it over and over and over again until she wants to kill everybody. And yeah, that's basically my impression of this song is like, oh, if you listen to it enough, it'll make you <laughs> homicidal. All right. All right, it's on the list. <laughs> preemptive vote we appreciate you dear listeners being an hour and 17 i'm guessing minutes deep on this episode and i hope you enjoyed yourself we really had fun breaking down the cure telling alan why he's wrong and until next week for 1001 album complaints i have been tom i've been alan and i'm rob Boo.